it, so that's good. All right, well, turn with me this morning, if you would, over to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be looking at a few verses today, uh, but we're going to begin with Isaiah <laughs> chapter 7. Everyone, everyone knows today is the day all around the world that uh, uh, is commonly known as Christmas. I don't particularly care for that word. It's a uh, it's a, a word that is uh, tied to the Roman Catholic Church and the Catholic Mass, and uh, I don't particularly care for it myself because number one. Uh, Christmas, or the Christ Mass, we don't believe that Christ is uh, <coughs> Mass is anything that we should be observing, uh, and uh, we definitely don't want to uh, uh, be identified with the Roman Catholics in any way, but uh, we also know that there is uh, other things that goes on during this time that are being celebrated, most of which is rooted in pagan tradition. But I'm not here to argue or to fuss one way or the other about any of this, but we commonly look at today as a celebration of the birth of Jesus. And that's what most people look at as, uh, as Christmas, uh, is, uh, a celebration of the birth of Jesus. Now, somebody, some people may say that's the day that we worship, the day that Jesus there isn't anywhere in the scriptures, brother, and I'm just going to kind of give my bias up, up front here. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that we are to, to, to honor or to worship or to set aside a day to honor the birth of Jesus. Okay. Uh, although it's, uh, Christmas is, is a very strong, supposedly Christian holiday. Um, it, uh, uh, is not a day uh, or a worship that is commanded by the Lord in Scripture. Uh, matter of fact, I'm of the mind, if, you know, unless I'm found to be ignorant of, of some things, which I am a lot, uh, I don't find anywhere in the Scriptures uh, any place where we are to commemorate, to memorialize, to remember the Lord Jesus' birth. The only places that we find where Jesus has commanded us to remember him or to commemorate him is in the two ordinances that he gave to the local church. And that's in the Lord's Supper and that's in baptism. Whenever we baptize, uh, we show the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection as our head, as our substitute. And whenever we, if the Lord has granted us repentance and faith and we come to believe on the gospel, we're called to and commanded to by Christ to be baptized in water to show forth or to identify uh, ourselves in that way, that we are to be baptized. And whenever we are baptized, we are declaring the gospel in our baptism that we are hoping or trusting or we are looking to Christ alone whose death, burial, and resurrection was not only for us, but is our salvation. He didn't, he not only did it for me, but that is what I am hoping in as my salvation, <laughs> is what he has done on the cross in my place. 
And so baptism is a <laughs> reminding or a commemorating of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper, and he told us to do this in remembrance of me until I come again. <laughs> that we are to uh, keep the Lord's Supper, and in that uh, in that ordinance, we take the, the, the bread and the wine, and we take those two things and we commemorate or we remember what the Lord Jesus done in his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And so the main emphasis uh, of Scripture is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we are to talk about. That's what's that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the work of Christ, his righteousness. If you remember last week, we talked about um, what is the righteous requirement of the law. What fulfilled the righteous requirement? Well, the righteous requirement of the law was that sin had to be condemned in the flesh. Well, what did Jesus do? He condemned sin in his flesh. He gave his flesh. Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is. Remember, Jesus said, take this bread, it's my flesh, take this wine, it's my blood. The the bread and the wine represents his broken body and his shed blood. And so... We see that those are the two things that the Lord has given to memorialize, to commemorate, that we that becomes part of our worship to God is these two ordinances. And nowhere does it say anything about so, you know, people that don't celebrate Christmas, you shouldn't be judging them or anything like that. That's that's between them and the Lord. You know, what they want to do, uh, it's not a requirement of Scripture. They're not anti-Christ. They're not anti-Scriptural. They're not, uh, you know... Uh, I hate Jesus, or I'm not a very religious person or a very uh, spiritual person because I don't celebrate Christmas, anything like that. That's and those who do, hey, that's between them and the Lord. Also, you know, that's their that's how how they look at. It. If they want to commemorate the Lord's birth, then that's that's up to them. Leave that to them and and everything. But uh, we shouldn't judge each other on those thing on those particular things. But what I wanted to look at today is the Bible does talk about the birth of Jesus and it is a wonderful and glorious thing the fact that God came to earth in human flesh for us and died. That's a very miraculous thing. It's a very wonderful thing uh, to see that God would take on flesh is just, who can understand it? As a matter of fact, the Bible says great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifested in the flesh. I mean, it's a mystery why God did this. It's miraculous <laughs> that God would do this and, and did this. That the heavens of heavens can't contain this God, and yet He can took and, and confined Himself into human flesh, um, and that all of His fullness was found in human flesh in Christ Jesus. It's truly an amazing thing, and so. The coming of Christ as as the Savior in His role as the as the uh, as the Savior as Jesus uh, that truly is a beautiful thing and, and and it's a teaching of Scripture and it is recorded in Scripture we have testimony of it in Scripture and we should teach on it and we should preach about it and talk about it and everything there doesn't seem to be anything in Scripture that tells us that we should set aside a specific day, and this is what we worship. Matter of fact, we know Jesus wasn't born during this time of year anyway. But 
Still, the fact remains, <coughs> it is an important thing that we should talk about. However, whenever we talk about Jesus coming and being born, most of the time, and you see it, especially in this time of year, everybody it gets all excited and talks, and the whole focus is about a little baby in a manger. People put up these little idols called nativity scenes where they have all these little figures uh, there with a the baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, uh, that they, that they put up with these images with Jesus there in the middle. And, you know, we look at that and we say, oh, how precious. And we sing songs about it and how precious it was. And Mary, did you know that your little baby boy? Yeah, Mary knew. The angel told her this was God. She knew who it was. Um, but we always harbor on this little baby aspect. But the fact remains is it's not the importance of the little baby. Okay, he was a little baby. At one point he was a little baby. He came, the man, Christ Jesus, came to (laughs) earth and came as a child. And he grew in stature. And the Bible says that that. He was all God. He was all man. And for for his whole entire life, never ceased being God. He was fully man. And so he did experience this period of being born and coming forth. And he had to be born. You know, we've talked about this here before. We we see and understand the scriptures teach that, that Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, had a pre-existence before he was born of Mary. The Bible speaks clearly of that as Christ as the mediator, uh, as uh, as uh, uh, him taking on flesh before he became uh, born of Mary. <coughs> but he had to be born of woman to legally be our representative. So according to the law, he had to be born of woman. Meaning that Mary had to bring forth the child, that Mary had to deliver this child, and and that made him her legal son. Now, it wasn't her true son, it wasn't her physical son, because we know that we are of the earth earthy, but he is the man from heaven, that he is the one from heaven. He's not of the earth earthy. If he had been born of Mary, he would have been of the earth earthy, just like we are. But yet, legally, he was able to be our sacrifice because he was flesh that was born of flesh. He was born from Mary. Therefore, according to God's law, that was Mary's son. And and as being Mary's son, then we can trace his lineage all the way back through to David and all the prophecies that was being told uh, and everything uh, that revolved around that. Now, With that being said, he became a baby so that he might be born legally. But brethren, the right, the office, the role that he had as Christ Jesus, as the Son, was set up from everlasting. It didn't start whenever he became Mary's son. He wasn't who he was because he was born from Mary and was nurtured into that role. He didn't become Jesus as years went by 
and learned of what he should do. No, he came for that purpose. And he came as a child, grew up to be a man, and at the appointed hour entered in to his ministry. And at the appointed hour, he died. And we're going to see that the manger was only part of the way to where he was going and the whole purpose for him coming. The manger was just part of that. It isn't the stopping point. We sit and and we ponder on Christ in the manger, but the whole purpose of Christ in the manger is not to goo-goo and gaga over baby Jesus. That baby Jesus is still God manifested in the flesh who came by purpose, who came for a reason. And the reason he was there, the Bible fully declares, and that is to die. He came to die. He came to be a ransom for his people. He came to be a sacrifice. He came to condemn sin in the flesh. And so the main point, even whenever we talk about the baby in the manger, if we stop with the baby in the manger, if we just keep harboring about the nativity, what is the goings on, so that we can have this ooey-gooey holiday that everybody wants to be uh, so enamored with, if we continue to stay there and to make that the issue, we're missing the whole point of the baby in the manger. The baby in the manger wasn't so that we might have a good holiday where all of our family gets together. It wasn't so that we could trade pre- uh, presents one with each other or have Christmas cheer or put lights on our houses or whatever people do for, for this time of year. That wasn't the reason that Jesus came in the manger to set up a holiday for people to worship <laughs> him in the manger. The reason Jesus came in the manger, which, by the way, is way far different than the lovely little scenes we see in our Christmas cantatas in these uh, modern churches and in uh, in the in the nativity scenes that we see, it wasn't as glamorous of a thing as we think. It was a rough go. There was no place for them to stay, and they had to be put out in the barn with the animals. And the manger is just basically a feeding trough. And so Jesus was there in the midst of horrible environment. And so the point of all of this is that Jesus, who is the God of all things, the Creator, the Sovereign over all things, lowered Himself to come the way that He did, but it wasn't to be that it was so that he might die. Now, if you'll look with me in Isaiah chapter 7, we see the prophecy about Jesus. And I just thought I would make a few thoughts today. I don't know how far we'll go with all this today. I wrote down a few verses dealing with Christ's coming. But as it <laughs> pertains, again, like I said, the importance of this day, if you want to call it this day, the importance of Christ being born is that Christ came to die for his people. Not to be idolized as a baby in a manger. Isaiah chapter 7, look if you would at verse 14. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. He said, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, 
a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we also read this later uh, in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 1, which we'll be going to here in just a little bit. But we see that this is the prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus, that there would be a virgin who would give birth to a son, and that his name would be called Emmanuel. And some people go, well, wait a minute, I thought his name was Jesus, and how come his name is Jesus? Well, we'll get to that here in a minute, and uh, why they didn't call him Emmanuel all the time that he was here. The word Emmanuel here, the Hebrew word Emmanuel here, means Jehovah with us, or God with us. It means God with us. God is with us. And so, whenever it was prophesied that Messiah would come, they understood that it would be God Himself. God was teaching, even back here in the Old Testament, that He Himself would come and be the one who would relieve them from their problems. That, that God would be the one who would come and, and, would, and would take care of all of His people. And he said that he would do it himself. Matter of fact, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God has said that it would that that he would be their God and they would be his people and that he would dwell with them. Well, it wasn't just Christ coming in the manger and then walking for 33 years among them. No, God has been with us as our mediator. And as we've seen whenever we went through the, the manhood of Christ. If you remember, all through the Old Testament, God was with His people. In many places throughout all the Old Testament, we see Christ manifested to His people as their deliverer, as the one in the pillar, as the one in the fire, as the one in the fiery furnace, as the one in the lion's den who shut the... Uh, well, He wasn't there in, in physical form that we know of, but... He was, he was there on the plains of Mamre talking to Abraham. He was, you know, we see Christ there. And so God has been with us. So the virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Brethren, that is, as I said just a few minutes ago, that is an amazing thing to know that God has inhabited this earth this sinful place, and that he dwelt among sinful people. What a miraculous thing that is. But while you're there in Isaiah 9, or 7, turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet Isaiah went on to write about Christ Jesus whenever he wrote this by the Spirit. He said, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now what's he talking about? Is he talking about the government of the United States? Is he talking about the government of the UN or the government of Russia or what's he talking about? And the government, the government of his kingdom, the government of Christ's kingdom is upon his shoulders. The government of all things is on his shoulders. Everything is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He is the king 
of kings. So that means the government of all kings is upon his shoulders because he is the king over all other kings. He is the prince of peace. He is the Lord of lords. He is the mighty God. He is the ruler, as we're fixing to see some of these names. The government is upon his shoulders, meaning that he is bearing the load of all things. And if we look, if you remember back in Colossians, we see that by him all things consist or is held together. By Jesus Christ, all things are held together. So Christ, not only as mediator, as substitute, Christ is the one who God has appointed to be the ruler over all things. The Bible says that he's given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That there is no other name given among men by whereby men must be saved. That he is the central figure. That he is the one of central worship. He is the one who is going to receive glory and honor. Jesus Christ is the one who is the center of all things. And at the center of the work of Jesus Christ is the cross. Not the manger, but the cross. The work of Christ Jesus in his righteousness is the work of Jesus not in the manger, not in the boy at 12 who went into the temple and taught the religious leaders and showed them a few things, not as the one who did the miracles by the seashore, not the one who gave the good oratory speeches and preached the good messages, although all that was important. It was part of God's purpose and it was obviously important. But the central aspect of the central figure of all things is what Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection for his people. That is the center of everything. That's why Paul said, I don't know anything among you save Christ and him crucified. The most important thing that I can preach to you today is not how Jesus became a little bitty baby in swaddling clothes on a silent night with shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Much less jingle bells and Santa came to town. The most important thing as a church, the most important thing as a preacher... The most important thing as a child of grace that we can see in the word of God that has been revealed to us is that God was manifested in the flesh and came and dwelt with us so that he might die for us. That's the most important thing. I'm not here to tell you about jingle bells or Santa Claus, or reindeers, or swaddling clothes, I'm here to tell you that Christ became flesh so that he might die for you. If you are his child, if you are his, he has died for your sins. And the government of all things is on his shoulders, and you don't have anything to have to worry about because he is controlling all things. He is above all things. He rules over all things. The Bible says he is the one who sets up all rulers, all kingdoms. Listen, Biden, he didn't get in by everybody voting for him. And he surely didn't get in because they cheated, even though we think that they did. That still isn't the reason why Biden is where he is today. Biden is where he is today because the sovereign God before the foundation of the world had predetermined before all things to give the United States at this time that guy. 
Now, we complain about it. We don't like him. We think he's a horrible ruler, and surely he is, and he very is a wicked man. But brethren, that is the man that the Lord has given to us. And the Bible says that he gives us wicked rulers as judgment over the nations. America despises all things holy and righteous and just. just. Look at look where we're at in this world today. And the Lord has given us wicked leaders. But above all these rulers and leaders is Christ Jesus. And He is the one whose the government is upon His shoulders. But we see that the government of His people, the kingdom of God is upon His shoulders. He is the one carrying out everything that is the stability of His kingdom. Everything that is the totality of His kingdom. He said that my kingdom is not of this world doesn't mean that his kingdom isn't in this world. I hear that argument all the time. Well, his kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, so it ain't talking about right now. His kingdom is not of this world, meaning it doesn't originate or come from this world, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in this world. His kingdom comes from divineness. His kingdom comes from somewhere outside of what He has created. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness where He is the central figure. And His people is where He dwells. The Bible says that we are a tabernacle, that we are a sanctuary not made with hands. We are lively stones. We are a tabernacle that we are built up But it's not us as these physical people that we are now. It is who we are as a spiritual people in Christ Jesus. And that is where Christ Jesus dwells. Emmanuel, God with us, is dwelling in his kingdom now. And his kingdom is his people. And his people are the sanctuary in which he has entered in. And in that sanctuary he rules and he reigns. And he rules over his kingdom. And his kingdom serves him as he works in them to will and to do his good pleasure to carry out all the purpose that God has intended for them. The government shall be upon his shoulders. The whole purpose of him coming and dying was so that he might establish righteousness and everlasting righteousness. And his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. We are a kingdom of a holy people unto God. But it's because he established it. The government was on his shoulders. It was for him to carry the load of the kingdom. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, Christ is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And it says, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with just judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Christ Jesus is the one at the center of the kingdom of God. 
Now, he's the center of all things. He's the center of, of, of this creation. He's the center of all things. But, brethren, listen. When it comes to salvation and the work of God and salvation, Jesus Christ is the center of it. And it says here that he will perform this salvation. He will perform the increase of his government. <clears throat> he will perform the peace of his government. The peace that his government... We know peace in this government because he is the Prince of Peace. And we are told of this. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor. He is the one who, who counsels us in the work of peace that he does as the one whose government is upon the shoulder, his shoulders. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because I will bear your burdens. The weight of the government of his kingdom is upon his. And here we are, we're out here worried about running around all over the world trying to make sure we get everybody saved because the kingdom must be advanced. We're out here advancing the kingdom of Christ. Listen, my Bible here tells me that Christ is the one who is the king of the kingdom and that he is advancing that and that that government and the increase of that government and the peace of that government is on his shoulders. It's on him to make sure. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. Christ is building his church. Men are going to fail. Churches are going to fail. Churches are going to completely go out of existence. We know of churches that completely just disband, go out of existence, never hear of them ever again. They go out of existence. Why? Because men, men's hearts fail. Sometimes churches may be made up of people who are truly not saved. Therefore, they would not be a church, but the point being is, is the the advancement of God's government rests upon Christ's shoulders. And He came to be Emmanuel, God with us, not to be admired and adored as the baby, but to be recognized as the king whose government is on His shoulders. He came as the Son so that He might increase the government of His kingdom. It says there shall be no end. It's established with judgment and with justice. He isn't doing this and doing things that is against His judgment. If Christ comes and saves His people and His people only and nobody else, guess what? That's done in judgment or in justice. His government is governing in justice. For Christ to only die for His elect and not for the reprobate is not unjust. Because Christ's government is just. The Bible reveals to us that He established this kingdom in justice. Now there's more to be said about that than that, and it means more than that. But my point is that what Christ is doing and what Christ has done is upon His shoulders. His coming to be God with us was for the purpose and the, and the reason that the Son was given is so that His advancement of His kingdom would be done. 
Now turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Notice in, notice in both ver- sets of verses that we've already looked at, that while it talked about Christ's coming, being born of a virgin, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. The point being God with us. Okay? And in Isaiah 9, the fact that unto us a son is given, a child is born, a son is given, but the point of that is that He is the Counselor. He is the Mighty God. He is the Everlasting Father. He is over all things and that the government of all of His kingdom is upon His shoulders. Again, the whole emphasis upon His birth is His governing as King through His righteousness which was established at the cross. Which was shown in full view at the cross. But look if you would, Matthew chapter 1, and verse, starting verse 21. And it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet <clears throat> saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So now we started off reading in Isaiah chapter 7, that very verse. And now we see in Matthew, uh, it is being quoted, that he shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And said, now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken. What was being spoken? That he would be God with us. Emmanuel was come. A virgin shall be uh, with child and shall give birth to a child and that shall be God. And he said, this was all done. The reason that Jesus came was to show that God was with us. Now look at verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. That word Jesus there, if you look up, it comes from a Hebrew origin. And that Hebrew word there means Savior. It means to save. It actually, when you break it fully down, it means Jehovah saved. Past tense. Jehovah saved. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. His name was to be specific. Jesus. Well, why Jesus? Because the word itself means God who saved. God is the Savior. The God who will save. The God who is Savior. All these things revolve around the fact that Emmanuel, God with us, came that God might save us. You shall call his name Jesus because he, God with us, shall save us from our sins. His people, that is. 
Now notice, brother, we talk about this all the time here, and you hear it often. That hard shall there, he shall save his people from their sins. We notice there that, number one, it's a definite thing. It's going to happen. He shall save his people from their sins. That was the purpose that he came. We just read it. The purpose that he came was that the government of his kingdom shall be upon his shoulders. His government is established in righteousness. And his righteousness was displayed in his death. For he shall save his people. He shall save. There's a whole lot that I can get out of that, brethren. Number one, he shall save his people from their sins. Preachers don't save people from their sins. The preaching of the gospel doesn't save people from their sins. Churches don't save people from their sins. Mama and papas don't save people from their sins. Baptizing people doesn't save them from their sins. Keeping the law doesn't save people from their sins. The Bible says, He shall save His people from their sins. Who? Jesus. God with us. God the Savior will save His people from their sins. Well, don't you mean though, I know you mean that, but don't you mean that He will make a plan so that people can be saved? No, no. He, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the one who is the governor over all things, God with us, manifested in the flesh, He shall save. All the saving that is to be done, whether it be legal or whether it be experiential, He will accomplish for you, if you're His. He shall save. I know you say, you keep pressing this point, you keep pressing this point. What is the point? The point is the point. Christ is the one who saves, brethren. It's not your faith that saves you. It's not your belief in Christ that saves you. It's not your repentance that saves you. Those are all byproducts of the fact that He has saved His people from their sins. The saving was by Him, through Him. It's not in anything that you do. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible says that it is by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's Christ who has saved us. He shall save His people. Not all people, but His people. I know that's a hard thing to preach and it's a hard thing to hear. I know that that's a hard gospel that people think that, that can't be peddled. Well, that's the whole purpose. Is the gospel isn't something that should be peddled. The gospel isn't an invitation. The gospel isn't a uh, offer. See, if the gospel was an invitation and offer, that offer that is a horrible thing. Christ only died for 
some people and not all people. Well, how are you going to invite people to Christ or offer people to Christ if you, if there's only certain people that's going to be saved? Well, that's the point. That's the deal is your whole theology has been formed around a wrong understanding of salvation. Yes, you can't invite and offer people when only some people have been saved because the salvation is not an offer and it's not an invitation. Salvation, the gospel, is a declaration of the finished work of God with us, Jesus who saved his people from... It's the declaration that Jesus shall save his people from their sins. That is a declaration, not an invitation. Whenever I preach the gospel to you, I'm not inviting you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm declaring... That Jesus Christ has saved from sin. That salvation is in Christ Jesus. That there is forgiveness of sin in Christ Jesus. That there is reconciliation to God in Christ Jesus. That all the law has been kept by Christ Jesus on behalf of his people. And the ones who hear that, the ones who believe that, the ones who repent from thinking otherwise about how they're saved and turn to that, those are the people that Jesus has already saved and has granted them faith and repentance. So who do I preach to? I preach to those who are saved. We preach to those who are saved. That's why there's this misnomer that people believe that people like us, how we believe, oh, well, you don't preach, believe in preaching the gospel to everybody. You only believe in preaching the gospel to the people in your church. That's not true. But I will say this, that the gospel is only preached and heard by those who are saved. And whenever I say saved, I'm not talking about people who are in church and who are believing, although we do that. I'm talking about, whenever we're talking about people repenting and believing in conversion, I'm talking about they hear that by the hearing of the spiritual ear from the spiritual preacher. He's preaching the gospel to them. And they hear. They have to hear it from him before they can hear it from me. And so what am I doing? I'm preaching. And those who have an ear to hear, let them hear. That's what Jesus used to say all the time, right? Let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Everybody that was there had ears. And they could hear. They was there listening to him. Is that what Jesus was meaning? He was meaning, no, let those who have a spiritual ear, let them hear what the Spirit says. See, the Spirit is the one who's teaching. And so Jesus shall save his people from their sins. So it's not an invitation, it's not an offer, it's a declaration to those who have been given ears to hear, who have been saved and have been granted repentance and been given faith to hear and understand. It's his people. His salvation is for his people. And he saves them from their sins. He doesn't save them from sinning. He saves them from the penalty. He saves them from the, the guilt. He saves them from the condemnation of sin. The condemnation of sin is death. And He saves them from that. He saves them 
from the uh, guilt of sin because He gives us a clean conscience. He saves them from the penalty of sin that, that we no longer are underneath that penalty anymore of death. He saves us from that. Now, this whole thing of Him coming to be born, again, centers around what? His death, His burial, His resurrection, His saving His people. Why? Because Christ, before the foundation of the world, was set up as the Lamb slain. Christ, before the foundation of the world, was possessed of God, meaning that God had brought Him forth as Christ. And God, who is invisible, God who is infinite, God who is unseen, manifested Himself in the man Christ Jesus who became our mediator and our covenant head. He is our covenant. The covenant that God made, that everlasting covenant that God made, was I will save my people from their sins. He's covenanted to do that. God cannot lie. And He did that. Now, what does it mean to save them from their sins? Well, we know that that also was prophesied. Turn back with me, if you would, to Daniel. Not this Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Now, if you're a, anybody watching or listening, if you're a premillennial, you're probably going to fit, probably going to start squirming in your shoes when I start talking about this. But Daniel chapter nine, and I'll just say it at the onset, I believe these verses is not talking about a future that's still to be future. I believe that this, what this is talking about has already come, has already gone. It's been completed. It's been fulfilled. It's not something that we're waiting on to happen. Daniel chapter 9, and if you would, look with me at verse 24. Now Daniel had this vision, and he had uh, this prophecy that he was given to tell and of course, again, this prophecy, just like Revelation, these prophecies was given in signs and symbols and pictures. Okay, and so we see that they have uh, they have larger understandings. Okay, they have a spiritual understanding behind them. But look what it says here. It says seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, there's one thing, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, we see here that 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city. And this was to begin at the declaration to restore, as we read through Scripture. But this was given at the declaration 
to restore whenever Israel was brought out of Babylon. Now, it says 70 weeks are determined. Whenever we look that up in the scriptures and we see what does that mean, it means 490 years. So 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation. What's this point to? Well, some people think this is pointing to the future when Jesus is going to come again and going to destroy all things and, and all this kind of stuff. And they, and they look at this and they say, well, the 70 weeks is up until um, Jesus Christ came and then that 69th week of, uh, or that 70th week hasn't happened yet. That's going to be this millennial reign or there's going to be uh, at the end of time. There's all kinds of different outlooks out there on there but that 70th week is we've not hit the 70th week yet that 70th week is something that's going to happen in the future well brethren i i'm here to say that this has been accomplished this right here is speaking of the death of christ it's speaking of the work of christ on the cross and what he came to do he said 70 weeks are determined upon my people and upon my holy city Number one, to finish the transgression. What does that mean to finish the transgression or to end the transgression or to complete the transgression? Well, Jesus Christ came to seal up that word finish, or excuse me, that, that word uh, to uh, finish the transgressions there. Um, means to seal up, to finish up, to put an end to transgressions. Well, what did Jesus do in the dying and the substitutionary death that he did for his people? He took away their transgressions. Because of Christ obeying the law perfectly, there is no more transgressions of his people before God. They are justified before God. There is no more transgressions. He has finished the transgressions or ceased the transgressions. Sealed them up. Finished them off. They're all done. There are no more before God. Whenever God looks at us, it's by imputed righteousness that He, that he sees us. And therefore, there is no transgressions. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not sin. The Lord hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Why? Because there is no transgressions. Why? Because the God manifested in the flesh who came, saved his people from their sins. Which sin is the transgression of the law. There is no more transgression of the law for God's people because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. There is no more transgression of sin before God because God has justified us in Christ Jesus. It says here, and to make an end of sins. Our sins are not going to come up before God. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, transgression, sins, iniquity, that's all talking about the same thing. But what has Christ done? He has finished them. He has made an end of them. 
And he has made reconciliation. That word reconciliation, we might use the word expiation or atonement for it. Christ has made an atonement for it. Christ has came and atoned. He has made the payment for those iniquities. If you remember in Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it real quick. In Isaiah 53, it says... That it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, or a payment for sin, that's expiation. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, he shall see the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He has made reconciliation for iniquities and to bring in everlasting righteousness. He brought in everlasting righteousness by his work of righteousness, which he died on the cross, dying on the cross, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All these things is his everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy, that means that word sealed up means to wrap it up, to finish it up. It's all done. All the prophecy, all the visions that were pertaining in the Old Testament to Christ and Him coming and what His purpose was in coming as Messiah. He's come once to seal all that up. To finish it up. All that was that was prophesied about Messiah coming to die for His people, to redeem His people, to justify His people, to expiate, to propitiate, all those big theological words, Jesus came. And He sealed it all up. Finished it up. Wrapped it up. The Bible said that the prophets were unto John. John was the forerunner of Christ to make way and prepare a people for Christ. Why? Because there was a there's a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant coming. The new covenant in Christ Jesus was to replace. Now some people say we still have the old covenant; it's still there, but the new covenant is the newer fulfillment of, of the old covenant. Listen, the new covenant is exactly that; it's a new covenant. The old covenant is the old covenant. The Bible says that the new covenant came and replaced, that the old covenant perished, it died, it went away. That the new covenant came in to take the place of the old covenant. That the old covenant is no longer there, the new covenant is here. Well, the new covenant is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is Christ himself and his finished work. And so the Bible says that the prophets and all their visions were until John. There's no need for a prophet. There hasn't been a prophet one as far as prophets that we talk about here in the Old Testament. There's not been another prophet since the prophets were until John. But now there's no need for those prophets. Why? Because it's all been sealed up. It's all been finished. It's all been what? Made an end to. It's all been done. 
Christ has come and finished it all up. He's fulfilled it all. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to, to uh, uh, abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I come to seal it up. I come to fulfill every part of it. And in doing so, all the prophecies about everything that has to do with Messiah, I'm here to fulfill it to its fullest. Not one thing, not one little part is going to be left undone. I think people, I can't remember some... Someone I heard one time say that there was like that there's like seven hundred or nine hundred Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and the time that he lived those thirty three years that he fulfilled all nine hundred of those prophecies to a T. There wasn't one prophecy that wasn't left fulfilled. Which I know that any prophecy that would have been made, I don't know about the number, how many there was. That's speculative, but that's what's been told to me by smart people. And smart people can be fallible, so don't listen to what they say. But that's what was told. But let's just say there was a hundred prophecies. Well, if there was a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, Jesus fulfilled every one of them. If there was 10,000 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, guess what? Jesus fulfilled them because he said that he has fulfilled them. And this right here says that he has sealed up all vision and prophecy. Everything that has been prophesied, he has wrapped it up. He's done it. Then it says, and to anoint the most holy. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start reading it about verse 9. We'll, we'll end with this. It says, But we see Jesus. You shall call his name what? Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Who's saving their people from their sins? God, who is with us as Jesus. For we see Jesus, God manifested in the flesh, Emmanuel, the Savior of His people, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Why is is it that Jesus came and was made a little lower than the angels? Why did He come born of a virgin? Why did He come as the babe in the manger? Was it to be admired and to be put on a pedestal in that little manger? No, He came for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, every man is not talking about every person in the world head for head. It's talking about every kind of man or every every man, not just for the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Remember, this is a book we're being written to the Hebrews, the Jews. And Jesus also died for Gentiles as well as Jews. So their understanding was it was a salvation for the Jews only. So again, the apostle is reedifying the 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 fact that Jesus is the Savior for all kinds of men, not just Jews. For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things 
That sounds a lot like the government was on his shoulders, right? For it became him for whom are all, all things, for whom are all things, so everything is by him and for him. That's talking about Jesus, right? All things were created by him and for him. So everything that's been made is made for him, for his purpose. But it says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. So it became him in bringing many sons to glory. Is it all sons to glory? Many sons. Whenever you say the word many, that in and of itself, whenever you say many, means that there are some excluded, right? Because if you either have many, you have little, or you have all, right? Little, many, or all. If you say there was many, then that precludes the fact that it wasn't all, but there was a lot, right? In bringing many sons to glory. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, meaning that's God manifested in the flesh, came to bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's speaking of his people. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Wait, is that everybody? No, just the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. What? Flesh and blood. Why? Why did he come and take on flesh and blood? Why was he born in the manger? Again, not to be admired and adored as the baby in the manger. He came because it was the point along the trail in which God had predetermined that Christ would bring many sons to glory. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh, but he also took himself, uh, took also himself likewise, took part of the same, that, or so that, through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them, that are tempted. So we see here that Christ came and was made flesh, not to be admired as the baby in the in the manger, but that he might come to fulfill his purpose as Christ, to atone for sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. 
so they might save his people from their sin. All right, anybody got a question? Comment? Father, Lord, we just thank you today for all that you are. And ask you, Lord, that you might bless this day. Bless the time that we've had together. And keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.